You're listening to Band Geek with Richie Castellano on the Riotcast Network. Hey guys, Richie here. This is Band Geek episode 108 with my buddy Phil Maffa. I went to purchase college with Phil Maffa about 20 years ago. And Phil is a wonderful producer, composer, engineer, musician, teacher. He does it all. And he's a great guy. I had a blast in his studio that looks like a spaceship. And I hope you guys have a good time listening to the episode too. So before we start... We're going to take care of a little bit of business. If you use Amazon, please use our special Amazon link. You find it by going to riotcast.com slash bandgeek, and there's an Amazon banner at the top of the page. Just click that before you do your shopping, and a small percentage of your purchase goes to supporting our show, and it doesn't cost you anything extra, and we really appreciate it, and it goes a long way. So thank you. If you'd like to contribute to the show without using Amazon, or if you're in Uh, If you're not in the United States, where I understand the Amazon link doesn't work, you can also just donate to the show at richiecastellano.com slash tip jar. And that's a regular PayPal thing. And we've been getting some great donations and it's helping us up our game and just delivering better content, better quality content and more content. I don't know if you've noticed, we've been a little more regular with the shows and with the live streams uh, recently. And that's as a direct result of your guys' participation and contributions. So thank you very much. Okay, so without further interruption, here is Band Geek episode 108 with my buddy, Phil Maffa. Welcome to Band Geek, Richie here, and I am live in, well not live because you're going to hear this later, but I'm in New York City uh, with one of my favorite people on the planet, Phil Maffa at Butcher Sound Studios. Did I say that right? Yes, you did, sir. You just told it to me like 20 seconds ago and I'm I'm afraid I I almost already forgot it. Um, So his studio, we're actually right across the street from Madison Square Garden, um, this is awesome. We just went out to have the, the sous-shots, um, which for you non-New Yorkers or non-myself or Phil people means sushi, <laughs> at, at um, Shanghai Mong. If you ever go to Manhattan, go to Shanghai Mong. It's on 32nd, right? Yeah, 32nd, look K-Town. At, look at me remembering what things, where things are in Manhattan. And um, so you might be wondering who Phil Maffa is. A quick Google search will help you out with that, but I'm not going to do it to you. Phil is a is a mad scientist, genius, uh, producer, composer, musician, educator, um, writer, columnist, reviewer. You wear a lot of hats. Do a couple of things. Yeah. <laughs> I shovel snow in the winter too. We all do because we live in this stupid state where you, <laughs> where everything gets snowed. Although, but you probably don't have to shovel too much anymore, right? We got a few feet outside. Okay, I need some handling. Okay, here in Manhattan. <laughs> Because I know um, Andy just moved to Manhattan, and he's like, nope, I don't have to shovel anymore. I'm like, you mother... (laughs) You know, digging my driveway out and all that stuff. I look out for the block like a real neighborhood person. I try to keep that intact. That's cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You you try to bring a little bit of a 
the borough life to to the uh, the hyper sophisticated Manhattan types. Yeah, you got to know the ringers on the block, you know. <laughs> got to go around shaking hands and saying hello. So, um, if people want to like really quickly hear your music, like and see what you're about, what what are some places on the web they they can go visit? Um, yeah, I think that looking at my SoundCloud has a couple of tracks on there. I my name itself dot com is um got a couple of things that i update so and that, always... that's phil maffa m-o-f-f-a dot com yeah if you go to my my site there's a whole bunch of stuff there i like to do that the old-fashioned way right fuck the soundcloud and yeah all those other modern conveniences <laughs> and then i'm such a purist that when you get to my site there's an embedded soundcloud player <laughs> it's like yeah don't go to soundcloud <laughs> but go to my site to listen to this uh redirected soundcloud because their widget is so easily programmed <laughs> Well, that's like, you know, that's like my site. I got tired of um, updating it because, you know, now with social media, who looks at your website anymore? Everybody wants to see your Facebook or your Instagram or your Twitter. And all eight seconds of their time that they're willing to give to you. Exactly. So, if, you know, it's, it's amazing if someone you can get someone to go to your site. But basically, I got tired of updating it. Um, and I just now have everything Google embedded so I can do it right from my phone. It's a beautiful thing. But I actually learned uh, how to do web design at Purchase College, which is where you and I met. And web design has changed a lot since then. Since HTML 0.0? Yeah, that's what I, I you know, I, I was pretty versed in that. And then... The, same, the, same. Yeah. I sank many a minute into learning that bullshit. And then the rug was pulled out from under me with all the Flash stuff. And, and then I remember, um, what was it, uh, like semester one of, of web design was like, here is a you know an H, simple HTML code and and the uh, what they call the wuzzy wugs the what you see is what you get editors and and I remember the 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 first version of richiecastlow.com had um there were like just this is back when websites had to be like super dense and everybody's web page had like 24 different pages in it or, or more so every page i had had like a mackie 16 channel mix mixer at the bottom with automated faders that would move that were actually i remember an, that animated gifs i remember you had the progeny yeah. record yeah, and, yeah. and alone in my basement record all this other all this crap and <laughs> crap <laughs> <laughs> all this crap and it just like as soon as my website would load it would just bog whatever computer that it was trying to play just it would just complete like you know start stuttering and get all screwed up and stuff so phil's pulling out a television of some is that a commodore 64 <laughs> phil just pulled a, a commodore 64 out you know i i i'm doing a terrible job i have to explain where i am and what i'm looking at right now um this <laughs> this looks like a spaceship right now where i am I, I feel like i'm in the cockpit of a spaceship um phil's studio which you can see on his social media no, so actually, yeah, no, the studio the studio has a web page, and if you just go to Butcher Sound B U T C H A S O U N D dot com, the only thing on there is a picture of the studio. But I saw I'm, a YouTube video today of you like performing a track in your studio. That could have been even the old studio down the hall. Really? Um, oh, maybe. It's a lot of the same stuff, same spaceship, but different. Different spaceship yes. center. Yeah, so that was like the Enterprise NC01, uh, uh, 1-1701. This is the uh, 1701A, this one, right? Yeah, this is the big boy shit. <laughs> um, so I'm just more gonna, square feet, no big deal. For 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 my um for, for my audio geeks, I just want to explain what I'm looking at right now. So he has um he's got a, it looks like a Mac. Now, what operating system are you running there? Uh, that would be 10.6.8, the okay. last stable system. <laughs> So he's got a Mac and he's got a nice one. I remember when you would only run nine. 
Oh yeah, that was a, that, me and you. We we never like we we were the holdouts on a Mac. I have a friend, my friend Ray West, who's a hip hop producer in the Bronx. He, God bless him, has got the double O one. Guy puts out five albums a year making w- with that thing. So let me explain what the double O one is because not like not all of the uh, the listeners are techies like us, but a few of them are. Um, so. I talk about Pro Tools quite a bit on the show because that's what I use to record, and that's what Phil uses to record. And we learned Pro Tools together at Purchase College. We like we you and I learned at the same time. And Phil's one of my go-to calls when I get stumped. You know what I mean? What like, an honor it is to have you <laughs> call me for tech support because Lord knows your phone rings a lot. <laughs> so, so so we both learned uh, Pro Tools, but like in 1996, 1997, uh, getting a Pro Tools. Um, system for your home was not a viable option no the 001 was the very yeah. first well there was the audio media 3 which was bullshit it wasn't really like really a an interface it was the audio media 3 was a pci card that gave you like a couple that's of right. RCA, rca jacks oh yeah. my god and, and like that, that thing you could get that for 399 three dollars and 99 cents i mean <laughs> right right now yeah of course and and the funny thing is that just that just shows you the regard in which um, Digidesign at the time held, you know, the amateur, home recordist. Yeah, home it's like, yeah, here's this. Oh, oh, we made a nice little system for you with RCA jacks, which is like, you know, what you, your grandma used to hook up her fucking turntable. So, so yeah, it was so, that's so, hysterical. So lo-fi, but so finally, I guess the Audio Media Three was like wildly popular for them. And then they made this thing called the Digi 001, which everybody had. We all went out and got it. I started uh, my first. Now, did, did you ever come to my dorm room? You had to have come to my dorm room. I don't think you. I saw a, a dorm studio of yours. I In my dorm room, I and I'm sorry to talk about me. I know this is supposed to be all about you, but this, this is my show. So, so. Take over, Richie. <laughs> Take right over. So, in my dorm room in college, you know, you had your little desk. I had a 12-space rack <laughs> under my desk. I had a DAT machine. There's three spaces. A uh, cassette recorder. There's three spaces. I had reverbs. I had a patch bay. I knew you had a patch bay. I was waiting for you to say it. Oh <laughs> I had a patch God. bay. I had, um, I probably had a compressor. I had like all this shit in there. And uh, my first rig was, I had like a little Mackie mixer and the Korg 1212 running Pro Tools. And that thing sounded like shit. And finally, like when the, audio, when the um, Digi 001 came out, I jumped at it and I totally made a switch to Pro Tools because um, I was the only person at Purchase using Cubase. Um, and the funny story about that, like the end of that, is Pro Tool um, Purchase when when in 1998 when I started, which is when you started too, right? It's something like that. Yeah, um, I went there. I took up space for two years, real quick. You were doing like the liberal arts thing there. You could call it that. Okay. <laughs> No, because I, th- I remember you transferred into music the That's year right. I came in. So we were essentially going through the ranks Yeah, we together. started at the same time. And um, Purchase was using Studio Vision, which was a, made by a company named Opcode that uh, Gibson bought and ran into the ground. And <laughs> so, <laughs> Stick to guitars, boys. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, Studio Vision was a really great uh, software and that the MIDI editing was wonderful and really rich and detailed and nuanced and it had like some audio capabilities too so you can like so you know kids in the, the MIDI room could they can make their beats and then you know sing over them or rap over them whatever they wanted to do and, they, and that was there was enough horsepower in there Pro Tools for the longest time had just garbage garbage MIDI nothing it had just basically like yeah you can play stuff in here but have fun editing that yeah you know? it's always been what I would say about three versions 
behind every other software yeah. in the MIDI capability. What they, what they were doing in Pro Tools 5 with MIDI was what the contemporaries had done yeah, and th three versions back. And right. It's still kind of like that. You you don't, I mean, you could get the job done and there's plenty of great stuff in there. Yeah. But it's not the first program you reach for if you say, I'm going to be a MIDI composer. Yeah. I, I've adapted to it. I mean, I I was a MIDI composer for, for the longest time. Um, and I remember when Studio Vision, when, when, when they stopped making it, they, they couldn't teach at the school anymore because that was ridiculous to teach kids an obsolete program. So they switched to Cubase. Yeah, there was that Cubase Minute. And I had to go to one of our professor's house and teach her how to use Cubase. And it was a traumatic experience for the both of us, <laughs> for me and the professor in question, whose name shall rename, remain nameless. Um, and that so that was interesting. But once um, we had a really great teacher teach us Pro Tools, um, uh, Helmuth. As a, what's his first name? Again? Eric. Eric. Eric Helmuth, and um, he was he was a. Do you still talk to him at all? It's been years. He was a wonderful teacher. That guy, just a patient, even tempered dude, and he taught us. He basically taught all of us Pro Tools, and um, you know, he always had this. He always had this saying like Pro Tools makes my my uh, career possible. He he didn't even say easier or whatever. He just says it makes it possible for me to to be an audio engineer when you know I don't have a pro rig or, or whatever. And so anyway, getting back to the uh, Digi 001, we all had one and it w had two two mic pre's on it? Yeah, two two mic pre's in the front, six line in on the back. You're good to go. You, you get that and a little Mackie mixer and you can record your, your album and you can be good to go. Yeah, and if you needed to push it, it had ADAT in and out. So if you had a shitty ADAT laying around, yep. you could light pipe it in and now you had 16 by 16. Right, so that means what was the cost of the double one? A thousand bucks. Right? I think it was a little under a thousand dollars. And it came with a version, the first version of Pro Tools LE. Right, five point. What was the latest of that? Five point two point one. Oh, the last one they ever made. Maybe, maybe. So I still have that computer. I still have that interface. I've in my entire career only had two computers. I had that Mac and the one that I'm using now, and that's how I always do it. I remember you, me and you discussed this because I, um, we upgraded at the same time and you, I went with the G3 Dual 800 and you went with the G3, no, no I, the G4. I, yeah, G4. G, no, I went, the, I went, because I started the G3. Uh, I had the G4 Dual 800 and you went with the G4 876. Was that it? Wow. I don't even remember that. Um, and I was like, no, man, you got to get the, the dual cores. And you're like, no, I want the speed. I was like, it's only 76 more. He goes, no, man, you're going to want that single core speed. I'm like, no, you got to go dual core. And it's, you were right because Pro Tools never supported. They never supported that or the RAM. Yeah, never supported any of that. My computer was bricked within two years or three years um, because the – oh, they, they call that one the silver – Doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was like the, there was some silver bullshit name they gave it, and um, I and like after three years, my fire firewired uh, port stopped working. It just the computer just had a, just a massive meltdown, and I remember calling Apple and they're like, "Oh yeah, we don't support that version and that that product. Yes, it's 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 that's a known issue." I'm like, "Wait." I spent $3,500 on this computer for a known issue where I can't even plug a hard drive into it anymore. But yours, yours remained rocking. I'm forever. still, I still could turn it on to this day. I keep it. I know where everything is. And obviously, there's no point in selling it because what's a hundred? I'm gonna get a hundred bucks for it, maybe. Yeah. And yeah, and I and I have, uh, I have a vision of a future where 
I get that whole system running again, and I got that 90s sound. <laughs> that 90s sound that y'all want out there. <laughs> it's, that's true. That's like a thing now. Um, my uh, my 800 is, I got it like semi-working, I and I put it in my cousin's house, and that was what he learned on. But um, now he has like a Power Mac laptop that's, Better than my home studio computer. I could never do. I could never make a, a full anything with the laptop. Now we talked about this earlier. Um, what's the what's your your what's your deal with laptops? Because you, you we discussed this earlier. What's the what's the prejudice here, man? It's serious, man. <laughs> it goes back back to my grandpappy's day. Uh, um, <laughs> basically, um, I think a lot of it. Uh, I've been I've been hating on it for years, but I think I always it was always more from the live perspective right if we just want to stick to the studio no it doesn't make sense to me to have that unit all in one very expensive can't have too big of a screen but then oh yeah you could plug a screen into the port and have a bigger but then at that point you just have a less powerful computer that's going to die sooner yeah you know no laptop is going to have the amount of hours that i'm putting onto this tower right now like i said i've had two computers my entire audio career going back to 2001 or 2002 or something like that right and you know my theory is just drive them into the ground and then get then get the best most stable system you can get and repeat the process that's why i'm still using this one i got 10.6.8 and pro tools 9.0.6 can you can you take us uh because i i went on a, off on a little uh, side tangent there can you take us through your gear that you have here right now and maybe some of the stuff you don't have here because uh you said some of some of your stuff is packed up at the moment. Yeah, but um, more importantly, you know the things that we could see right now. Um, where to begin? <laughs> so the main sampler sequencer that I use, and I have two of these. One of these is home right now. But when I perform live and when I make music in the studio, these are Electron Octatracks. These are really futuristic, way ahead of their time hardware samplers that would be comparable to the kind of DAW that somebody would use who makes electronic music perhaps because it can time stretch and make loops and things fit and do tempo changes also got eight so eight tracks of audio right at 24 bit 44k reading off of a compact flash card you could have up to eight one gigabyte files playing at once that can time stretch and change tempo and do so many powerful effects and then on top of that it's an eight track midi sequencer and i have two of them which gives me eight outputs, 16 tracks, and you can be twice of everything, basically. So can you do a whole gig with that? That's or, what or, I perform with. Gear? What I perform with is two of these mm-hmm. and a DJ mixer in the middle. Okay. And that DJ mixer, which is over there, it's an Allen & Heath Zone 92. Yeah. And every channel has a pretty good four-band EQ. There's two filters that are real analog filters. And then most importantly, there's two aux ends and aux return channels that can be EQ'd and sent to each other. And I use that for a reverb and a delay. So these two, two send and return effects, a 303, which is a you know a, a bass. bass synthesizer, yeah. and also this noise synth over here, which is called a mind scraper. And this is a DIY thing that's kind of like these noise oscillators. Looks like that a, just, it looks sort of like a guitar pedal. Yeah, it's, um, you know. It's a one-off. This is a collaboration. A friend and I. Phil, Phil is was one of the first people I know I knew who did the uh, the circuit bending thing. Now, are you still are you still a mad scientist like that? I get in, into some of that stuff, and you know, buy these kits and things like that. 
Um, my, my ability to mess with things, you know, exceeds my true knowledge. I'm not one of these people that can look at a circuit and kind of determine the resistance of a path, leaving yeah. a chip and going through a transistor and this and that. I'm just lucky I know what those words are. <laughs> I can make a soldering iron, kind of stick two things together. But the kits are like a color by numbers type of thing. So you really don't even need the knowledge. You just have to follow the instructions. And I don't know, anybody who's like always you know wanted to get into that i say have no fear you know make a guitar pedal and mm -hmm. you could have all kinds of unique instruments and stuff that's awesome so uh, i want to talk a little bit about, about uh, more with that uh, the um the octatrack the octatrack uh, so how do you how do you prep that for a show like now can you can you build something from scratch only using that or do you need external don't, sounds don't, or you... well i mean you do need there has to be sounds in there because it's a sampler right but you can, uh, I use the word malleable to describe how how um, the potential that a sound has inside this machine is incredible. People are making entire songs with a second of white noise as their only sound source. And then they have competitions to see, you know, what kind of song can you write Using with. Using that. Just that. Oh, and that's man. because you can shape so everything. For, for what he means by, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It, it, that's just like a... Just that little bit of sound. He he can manipulate that so much. He can make a full, you know. He can color, get all the colors of the symphony for, for or the orchestra, for uh, example, because he can keep, you know, mo uh, modulating things, changing them, stretching them. Uh, so go on. Yeah, I mean, um, to say that I could, you know, recreate the rite of spring with it is is pushing it, mm -hmm. but could make a version of it for yeah. sure. Because what people are doing, you know, you you could basically uh, apply filters and envelopes and any number of effects and reprocess and resample things. And then you can have a chromatic scale of that over two octaves, and then you can change the the rate at which it's playing. Yep. And I mean, it's just limitless. And and um, yeah, that's the strength of this machine is that what you know, whatever you can dream up or however much you're willing to mess with something, you can turn any sound, even the most recognizable song sample into something completely unique. I always say this in a creator records and I could make music for the rest of my life for sure. How how's the interface cuz it looks kind of involved and it is a very tiny screen on it. Yeah, it has a it has a you know what a lot of people consider to be a pretty steep learning curve, mm -hmm. especially if you're coming from another machine that like this machine which is an MPC. Um, people who are used to the operating system on here, there's a little bit of time that needs to be sunk into it and that's a lot, like I feel a lot of those kinds of tech support questions for friends and 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 uh colleagues that that use this machine um and the manual reads really funny too people people get a kick out of how cryptic and how ridiculous some of the st the sentences are in there it's <laughs> like for example if you were to lay down a note that would be called a trig which is short for a trigger a trig right <laughs> and, it would, and then you know there's like trigs steps scenes patterns banks sets and that's the that's the hierarchy that's the architecture of it but then they have these trigs that it's kind of not a note happens but a parameter changes let's say that the uh the filter lowers the pitch lowers but the note is still the note that was already playing that's called a trigless trig right <laughs> so they got these they got these laughable paragraphs in the manual and then if you're not the kind of person who's like gets into manuals and the the, the true geeky side of this thing, it could be a little bit intimidating. It, it's it, it, you mentioned the MPC before, and I want to talk about that because I think that's an important piece of gear uh, for not only your genre but a lot of genres that you know don't rely on acoustic instruments so much, like you know 
see a lot of the band geek stuff we're de- dealing with rock and pop music um which you know and especially like we do a lot of older stuff but um this is a whole other world and it's something that i've always been interested in and i feel like like i feel like i know a lot about music um until i come to film office studio and then i feel like well i'm a fucking moron because i see all this stuff and i said i don't know how this guy can make music like like this and he does and it's amazing but i feel like like a lot of the techno house and hip-hop guys gotta have a common ancestry with the um the mpc and well the 808 really you know what i mean but let's talk um for a second can you Talk about like let's let's describe what an MPC is at, or in an eight hundred eight and a three hundred three and all these things. Uh, let's give a little history lesson to people who might have no idea what we're talking about right now with all these acronyms and numbers. I got you. So, um, Akai Professional is a company that made the MPC Music Production Center, and yeah, it was in I guess it was eighty six. They made the MPC sixty, and that was the very first one, and they made that in collaboration with Roger Lynn. Roger Lynn, of course, made the Lynn drum drum machine, which now, is where now. Where did we? The, didn't Genesis use the Lynn drum machine? And I mean, Prince and Madonna's first records have a lot of it, and yeah. that would be a place that people would hear. I mean, shit. Just to name any record is kind of yeah. silly because, yeah. like, where have you heard a Stratocaster? Before, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, on ten zillion songs, but that's a good pop reference yep. that I think people would know. Yeah, there's that slowed down side stick sample on there and prince used that a lot right like you could hear it very clearly in when doves cry beat uh and things like that i, I had a lindrum did you yes i did wow i had I a can't pr- you parted with it i had a pr- my, it was my uncle's and i think he sold it but we had a pre-midi lindrum and that's where i learned programming on uh, that was the first ever programming device i had oh, was wow. my uncle's lindrum and that it, thing hits hard it it you know what all of those sounds were very fat and and just they were the thing for me is they weren't rock sounds, so I, I always was just like ah, it's kind of cheesy. But it was cool to have just like that fatness, and and also it was cool to learn how to program on that thing because it you know there was uh, did that have the step sequencer on it? No, I don't that think would it did. probably that was... just have a metronome and you have to plug it in. Yeah, yeah, that I and think... that had faders for level and mm-hmm. pan left and right. Yep. I mean the Lindrum. See, the Lindrum was a machine that had. Uh, a chip on it that had digital samples stored in there. Yeah. And there were a couple of parameters for tuning. Yeah. Um, and then there were a couple of things that were straight up. But because of the success of that machine and the feel of the sequencer of that machine. Yeah. It had, a little, had like an, an inherent swing to it. Yeah. Sort of thing. And I guess it's rumored that Roger Lynn studied real drummers. Stuart Copeland's name gets brought into these, into this like mythology. But um, basically Akai making digital samplers wanted to work with him to make a sampler sequencer combination. And that's the first MPC, the MPC 60. And there were three MPCs that had his signature on there until they stopped using his name. The 60, the 60 MK2, which is basically a slightly different enclosure and like a headphone jack, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then the 3000 came out, which is this one over here. And the 3000 um, is regarded still to be the best one amongst MPC geeks for its sound, its feel, its timing, and it's so, just, it, it's build quality. This one will is still going and it works beautifully. And the people who have MPC 1000s and 2500s and all these other modern ones, they're all broken and, and busted. 
And by the way, that screen, the green screen in the yeah. background, that's the screen to this. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So let me des describe the NP. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm going to describe what I'm seeing right now because um, I've played with an NPC briefly. It was never my thing, um, but it was a very cool piece of gear. It's basically a desktop device, and it has, what is it, 16 pads on it? And um, this little screen, and it they came with sounds built into it, right? No, they would have came with floppy disks. Oh, floppies, at, right. At best. Okay. So you load your sounds on, and you can basically, uh, it's all those, <laughs> Phil has a stack of, of antiquated media right over there. He has all those floppy disks. dare discs. you say that. <laughs> and you'd make your, your beats for your song, and you can fly in samples, and you can make it as complicated as you want. And I'd say... You know, probably a very large portion of the hip hop you've heard was made on this machine at some point or another. Um, and, you know, to see people who were really good at it was sort of awesome because I remember our friend uh, Sebastian Marciano used to do a lot of stuff in the NPC and it was cool watching him just do his thing on it where he got that like uh, hair twirling thing he used to do. His little, little, Digging his way to China through he, his own scalp. Yeah, he used to do this like nervous tick while he was like being a mad genius. I know a lot of mad geniuses that do funny shit. But um, so he, so Phil's got one right here and um, and he also has a monochromatic monitor hooked up to it. It was pretty funny. Yeah, there, there was a feature that was only on this one. It was a an add-on you had to buy a vga port <laughs> and i was and i found out about it and i immediately ran to ebay and there are none they're very rare there's yeah. like one a year pops up on ebay i've heard but i looked at the back of the machine and realized it was already installed <laughs> there was just this port that has no name on it oh my it's god the VGA port and then somebody on the forum said get this hp 15 inch whatever so yeah. i have a 15 inch screen on the mpc so they make new ones now that work with software. I don't know if you saw. Yeah, that. I, I I actually got to use one when I was working at AMS, and um, I remember you didn't have very. I told you, hey, look what I'm doing. You're like, that thing's garbage. <laughs> you told me, I'm <laughs> like, oh, typical okay. thing that I would <laughs> say. Uh, you know, they basically MPC invented the format of having 16 rubber pads, and and that became used by a lot of. That's machines what I was going to ask you. Further yeah. down the road, a lot of machines did different configurations of rubber pads but you know these have a certain feel to them they respond really well they could take a beating work i mean again this is 30 years old this machine and the pads still are pretty good shape um so for a really good example of a modern ripoff would be the native instruments machine yeah people love that thing mm -hmm. and really all it is is a is a glorified mouse that controls their software That's it's it. not standalone so you can't you can't bring it anywhere without the computer and that bothers me as, a, as somebody who buys gear, this is part of my software hate, mm -hmm. is because in 30 years, you're not going to have machine. Right. I promise you. You will not have a computer that runs that app. But That's I have, a really good point. You know, the, the software goes obsolete, and yeah, they could probably issue updates forever, but like, let's be really serious. I mean, buying, an, buying a piece of equipment now in 2017, if you were to go out and buy like the new NPCs, which are both standalone and software compatible, or any other synthesizer, like let's just say a mini Moog reissue. Right. Twenty, you know, forty-seven rolls around, and you'll still have that synth thirty years from now. Yeah. You will not have that machine that you spent like five fifty on. Right. All right. But that being said, Native Instruments are a badass software company. They make cool instruments, and people love that machine. So Akai tried to get back in the ring and say, "Well, we're going to make what you basically borrowed from us." But the software wasn't ready yet, and it was very buggy. Yeah, and Native Instruments software is pretty together and all-encompassing. 
That's yeah. I, so Akai had to play catch up with their own software, and I think that turned a couple people off. But then they came out with another one that had a touch screen on it, and people still like it, and it still make music with it. If you're an NPC person, there's a certain language to the terms, and you're familiar with it, and you probably would rather use that than machine, which is all like glowing, pretty colors, and this and that. And yeah, that machine be, really looks like a spaceship. It's. I mean, I all this new equipment with all the blinking lights. If I wish the manufacturers would just stop. <laughs> It's very, it's really terrible. This like light, bright looking in, <laughs> interface and everything. I don't know who, who you, you, thinks you'd, you'd rather have something have wood paneling on the side. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like my mom's old station wagon. <laughs> uh, seriously, equipment should look like equipment. I mean, these blinking lights that are for children. I don't, I don't, I don't get. You know why you they in, they force you to use that. If you're gonna put that crap on there, at least allow us to dim it or turn it off. Right. There's there's um and I have a similar rule to th- that you have um about the about the laptop thing. Any piece of gear that I have to buy that requires you to use an iPad, I say forget it. Absolutely. Forget Speak it. Speak about I, obsolete in yeah, five ten yeah, years. I, I, yeah. You know, if it if an iPad is an optional thing, great. You know what I mean. But like, there's there are pieces of gear that you have to like slide your iPad into it, and then that's that's the brain of it. I said this thing's gonna be. <laughs> I said think about how how often Apple bricks their products. You're gonna brick this whole other thing. Like you you have like when you buy peripherals for the Apple stuff, you got to be very careful like what, how much you spend, and you have to really think about how long you're gonna have this stuff. So yeah, a- as an add-on, if the iPad interface with it, and there's an app you could download, and, and you already have an iPad wonderful but if it's like th- there was um the, the mixing board that that is the centerpiece of. yeah like uh, you know what like i i dig it you know but like you said you know i have i have a pa system in my garage that's probably 20 years old that i can go do a gig with right now if that required me to have some sort of uh you know <laughs> texas instruments <laughs> sort of <a laughs> ti82 mixer that i don't have anymore or some shit like it, it, it wouldn't work you know or i had to plug it into my commodore 64 that i don't have it but i would have just borrowed yours i guess but <laughs> i'm gonna show you what that does in a couple of minutes actually. um so let's so any, something in here the cool thing about npc people is not only like oh also the npc is a sequencer so you can trigger midi sounds and do all that other stuff yeah i mean it, it, when you brought up opcode studio vision yeah and cubase and all the early midi programs you know there are midi notes that get sent to modules yeah and this thing is supposed to you know be the entire centerpiece of a studio and for a lot of people that do what i do it still is hip-hop guys and electronic music people right everybody's still everybody's still using NPCs to do stuff new and old and some of their prices are really good now too on the secondhand market there are some things that are kind of like this one for example you know can fetch a pretty crazy price because it, it, it's people love historical it. significance yeah, exactly yeah. the 60 i mean if you look at the specs these things seriously um well this one's expanded but the the most that you could put in a 60 is 26 seconds and okay. that's with the expansion right you know um and another machine which i got to use a lot which i don't have here now is an sp1200 and that's made by emu and that was also that was a contemporary of the first mpc so half of the half of the beat based music was made with this and the other half was made with that these have a higher, well, the, not the 60, but the 3000 is 16-bit 44K, and that one is um, 12-bit 20K or something like so that. So it's a little higher quality. That's about it. But it also, it, it really, trans- the other machine, the SP1200, really transformed anything that you fed into it and and made everything fat. Even the, 
stinkiest hi-hat was like a kick after you put it in there. It was like a part of the robust sound. And the MPC-60 gets regarded for that as well. So where, just uh, to make a, to draw a comparison here, um, because me and you have, have like I, the reason why, and I want to tell the story, the reason why I think you and I are friends is because we're the same in the way we approach a lot of things, especially work ethic. We have a similar work ethic and we always worked well together. Uh, but just to draw this comparison here, whereas I would have a keyboard at the center of my studio, Phil has this at the center of his studio and, and, and his and your keyboard might be off to the side. You know what I yeah, mean? Like this thing is my, actually the Octatrack. Yeah. If I go, if I do one of these, it becomes, that's a chromatic keyboard now. Oh, nice. So those buttons, the ones that have lights are the, are the white keys, you know? So I'm comfortable just playing on there mm -hmm. half of the time. Sometimes I have to go grab a MIDI controller, but I don't like, yeah, I don't like having keyboards out unless I'm using them for the sounds. It's, it's so funny because I have, I have a bunch of different MIDI controls. I have the Roland Hand Sonic. I have a drum set and it's like, for me, it's always like the keyboard. Like I'll even play drums on the keyboard, just because that's like for me, it's what I'm so familiar with. And for you, it's this whole other thing. It's a different language, but we get the same results almost because it's just how you were, you know, how you developed. So let's talk about. Let's briefly run through some of this other gear because this is like a museum in here. Yeah, we could get sidetracked when we go <laughs> down that road. Anyway, NPCs are cool, and you should get one. <laughs> I, actually, real quick to stay on that, I, I always tell people, if you want to get into beat making, don't go and get some cool software from your friend and, yeah. all, and all the plugins and all of that, because that, that's always overwhelming. You should just get an MPC and learn how to make a beat on that for the first six months to a year, mm -hmm. and that'll be your ABCs of doing it. And that'll tr all those skills will translate to every other piece of software you use forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that... Um, Everyone's doing this shit now, and that's not—that's no secret. But by rushing into this this complicated thing, that has a zillion sounds in there, and everything is like already hand wrapped for you. Um, yeah, man, that 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 also is not going to help you find your own voice much quicker. Well, it, it you know, it's almost it's funny or or not funny, but amazing that you use as much hardware as you do to make this music because, like Phil just mentioned. Um, and, and what he's talking about is a really interesting and almost controversial thing in, in music production. Nowadays, you can buy, or you don't even have to buy, you can get GarageBand that comes with your computer, and you can make some form of electronic music very quickly, very easily. You can, you know, the, all the sounds are in there. You know, there's, look, look, on my iPad right now, I can, you know, I have an 808 sounding kit, you know what I mean? I have synthesizers, I have I have bass, and it's all based on this, it's all inspired by this gear, real gear you have, but I can make it, and going a step further, some of these, um, like we mentioned Machine, or some of these like, uh, you know, all-in-one solutions, they come with phrases that you don't even have to like, you know, like <laughs> Phil, Phil will either play something on an instrument, or grab something from, he has an extensive vinyl collection, and he'll, he'll really craft it, and, and he'll, and also, what he'll do is he'll take it. He'll take something familiar and completely destroy and reconstruct it to make it his own thing. But what these people do is they basically can drag a phrase from a folder into a pad and they just play it and they say, "Look, I just wrote a song." So this is a controversial thing with you know electronic music creation and and not for nothing, it's happening with with my genre too, where you can just bring a a drum beat in and, and a guitar riff and then and say, "Look, it's a song I wrote." Well, no, you didn't really write it. You just grabbed it from a folder. <laughs> it's all you know. The, we could go over the pros and cons of it. Mm -hmm. 
it, 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 it allows somebody who does have a song in their head but doesn't but don't you know have a band and they live in the middle of nowhere and mm-hmm. they don't have the resources it gives them the opportunity to lay down an idea and make a piece of art what they do with it or what it means to them or the originalities you know we could discuss that um and and that's cool and i think that's really cool but i usually do <laughs> lean on the side of getting pissed off <laughs> Well, it's, it's very it's understandable because well, there's when, a, there's also controversial controversy in my genre um or just in electronic in, ele- in all electronic music that you know you have to be the one that makes it and that you can't get any help from somebody in the studio that you can't have an engineer and to me you know i'm impacted by that because that's what i do i engineer mm-hmm. dance music i facilitate the recordings i do mix downs i do mastering when in the history of recorded music has it been a bad idea to employ technical people to make the record sound good and who does it what does it matter if somebody has input in the studio and and then i and then i question it and even in a joking way and say how much of a purist are we going to be do you have to go out and mine a bunch of copper and then make the circuits <laughs> yourself and do you have to code a bunch of software well if you're going to go that far you got to make the computer from scratch so you got to get that metal together yeah. you know so yeah, you have to be original and 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 I and I salute that, but then we really then we need to look at like we're talking about where do people get their content from? All right, you got a bunch of loops that were made by another professional and you found that yeah, they all fit at the same tempo when a program makes them fit at the same tempo. Yeah. You know, that's that grew that really locked in the groove there. <laughs> you know? But it's hard to be critical. I hear, I hear the disdain in your voice. As you know, but it's funny because it's hard to be critical of it because we all get a little bit of help. You know, the machines help us, the instruments oh. help us, and it's all. But that's the thing. You know, it is all good. The content is king. What's coming out of the speakers is the most important. Right. I mean, look, I've, I'm guilty of it. I mean, I, I don't know if you are, but I, I can certainly say that I've had to do something. I was like, oh, I really need like a loop under this and I don't want to sit here and fucking make it. And it's like, I just, so I'll just go through expand or whatever comes with Pro Tools and be like, oh, look at that. That's kind of what I want. And I'll just throw it under and sync it in the mix. Now, I didn't program that. I didn't c- grab the sounds. It was a ready-made thing that auto-locked to whatever the tempo of my song was. And so... Now, is that cheating? Well, I don't know, because at that point, that's not the main feature of my song. My song is already written, and I just needed to add a, a color to it or some sort of just little ear candy. But I feel like there is a difference, and it's th- when you're talking about freedom of expression and art, it's very difficult to find this. But um, you you have to look at them. Now, are these, these things that people are giving you, are they tools? Are they colors? Or are they ready-made compositions? And that is a difficult thing to reconcile because basically you're getting a library of phrases that were written by somebody else you know, and recorded by somebody else, and someone else went through all the trouble to cre- to create the timbres involved, and someone, you know, made sure it swung the right way, and and maybe someone played it on a pad or a keyboard or whatever, and then you're taking now here. So I, I think it's safe to say it's like if you put on a drum beat that's a loop, and then you grab a phrase that someone made over it, and you said, "Look at what I just wrote." You're full of shit. You know what I mean? You didn't write that. You can you yeah. you took two things that the computer automatically, like you said, put in the same tempo, and then you pat yourself on the back for being a fucking genius. But that's not that's not really the case. I mean, Here, it, here's the thing that I think that helps that helps us go to sleep at night. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, you could use it to be cool online, right? So there's not a there's not much you know that I, that we can care about that. But if people are using this to get a leg up in the performance world trying to like raise a certain 
profile so that you can get access to a stage and then put on a show, whether you're DJing or plugging your laptop in or plugging yeah. in gear, it, it doesn't matter. If you suck 10 times publicly and all you've had is like there's a lot of help in the studio and you know a cool pair of sunglasses, well, people are going to figure that out. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't bother me that much because I know that at the end of the day, like how far could somebody take it? It does, it does, it does disrupt things because now there's just another ten thousand songs that come out every day because the tools are so powerful and helpful, if you will. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, people can only fake it so far that I that I don't, that doesn't bother me. That it just I just does not going to affect the fact that like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and make this by hand. Right. You know. Now, when so when you. When you perform live, you don't use a laptop at all. You have no screens. Yeah, that we we got into that very briefly before of like why I'm such a laptop hater. Yeah. It's 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 kind of a preference that I take very far for comedic effect and break people's balls. But <laughs> um, I said one of my students asked me the other day, and I and I and I think that this is a decent way of looking at it. Um, you're putting on a show, and you want it to be a good show. And again, I, I always will stand by ultimately what's coming out of the speakers and the, and your your vibe and your message. Of course, that's the most important thing. But when you want to put on a good show and you want to entertain, and you have a laptop up there, you're only mysterious to ten people, ten percent of a crowd. Ninety percent of a crowd will be like, "Oh, I got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you're doing, even yeah. if they don't know what you're doing." Right. But if you have a bunch of weird shit and blinking lights, and you're you're sweating and you're working, and there's a sense that it could fall apart of any at any second, and that it's hanging by a thread, and they're as nervous as you are, that's going to make for a better show. Some people, I mean, it's very hard not to when you look at someone playing with a laptop, and we've all seen the DJs who have huge crowds, and they just basically press a button on their laptop, then jump up and down for 16 bars, it's almost like you think, are you looking at your iTunes playlist right now? Are you just playing a song? Or are you actually creating something live? And it's it's people who would think it's you're just playing a song would be making a good case. It's like they'd be forgiven for making that assumption because the laptop makes it very easy. It's like, yeah, I can, I can download a song from iTunes and play it. You know, yeah. So, I mean, I think that people in the past use DATs and CDs and backing tracks to mm -hmm. fake it, and yeah, you know, there's all there's all the possibilities of what you could do on stage and showmanship. But you know, like again, I, I could just like be, I could just feel good knowing that you can only fake it so far, and you'll either get tired of it or the crowds will get tired of you. And you know, I and personally for me, like I just prefer to do things a certain way. And I'm cool with that. Let's talk about practicing for a live gig for you. Um, so you have and then songs. the gear, and then all the gear. Yeah, I know we want to get back to it, but we keep getting to interesting things that that you know <laughs> that I want to know about, and I want to know about them too. Yeah. So and and that that I think our listeners want to know about. Um, so as an, an electronic musician or dance music, whatever you want to call it, and we have we have genre problems now, but uh, <laughs> and title problems. But um, so you have a you have a tune right that you, that you wrote. Um, so when you go perform it, are you trying to recreate the studio version? Like, are you trying to make all the moves the exact same way? Or are you just saying, all right, this song consists of these elements and however I decide to blend them together and however I'm feeling, that's the performance. Like, it, it, I think that the set is mixed with both ideas. Mm -hmm. There are some songs that um, basically when I write, let's take it back to where, how they even get written because then half of them get brought to the stage that way. Right. Um, you know, I got these two sampler sequencers over here. I like to run their sounds through different processors like these filters mm -hmm. and then 
bring them to the console, turn up the aux ends and put reverbs and delays on them and track all of that as a multi-track performance. And sometimes you get it right on the first, second or third take. Sometimes it takes many takes until you can walk away and be like, that's exactly what I needed. Sometimes I just let the machines run and due to the fact that they're all analog and there's lots of LFOs and, you know, I just let them run for a good 10 minutes and just get a good 10 minute multi-track of the same thing down. And then who knows if that's a good safety net to play with that later. All of those things are possible, but I, I really try to achieve is just to nail a take that I think is something I could work so with. So when someone listens to a Phil Moffat track, it's not like you're sitting there track by track saying, okay, track one, I'm going to program the kick pattern. And you wait for like five, six minutes. Okay, the, the, my quarter note kick's done. And it's okay, now I'm going to lay down a snare or whatever. It's like, it's it's you 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 do your, your prep and then you perform the tune yeah. and it's I, one it's yeah, all one take. Exactly. Like um, the same way that a modular person would put a patch together yeah. and then kind of like jam out with it. Mm -hmm. I think I, I'm doing something pretty similar except instead of having that format, I have samplers plugged into filters, plugged into delays and stuff. And you record it multi-track. And I do a multi-track where it's like each, you know, each element is on a fader and then there's stereo return tracks and try to get, you know, as, as broken up as possible so that when I mix it, I then put the mix engineer hat on and then mix that down as if the same way that I mix down for, you know, clients and things like that. Here's a question. Um, okay, so you just did your performance, right? It sounds great. Um, but... I didn't mean to do this one thing here. Oh, yeah. oh, I, Overdubs, edits. This is the wrong. Good. I, I hit the wrong note here. Um, so will you go in there and since you have the multi-track and pull it out and replace stuff? Oh yeah, exactly. Okay. Or if I did something that I thought was good, but then I stopped doing it because I, you know, made a mistake. Yeah. I could just, I could, I could keep that going for right. any amount of time. Because if your hands are on the filters and you're changing stuff drastically, you may forget in the moment to kind of just let something rock. Yeah. And in this music, you want to just have moment, you know extended moments when when the loop is working you just let it flow and again like those little micro things that are happening are enough to keep it interesting and busy um for the time so I, I will sometimes often just lay down a whole bunch of ambient and and texture and then prepare this kind of loop that i'm talking about a, you know a beat with 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 or without an a and b section route it to the faders and then jam out look at the multi-track and say you know, do I need to do anything to this or can I just mix it down? There may be there may be things, times where it's just like, I got it right and I'm happy with it and little mistakes I'm cool with. There may be times where I just take four minutes out of the middle because I just went on for 15 minutes. Right. And I'm like, let me just take four minutes out of the middle and one minute off the intro, one minute off the outro. Boom, I got seven minutes. Cool, I'm done. You know, all of those things are possible. I will look at it. I, I, I don't have to be a purist about it representing the exact take that I did. Mm -hmm. It's about presenting the best piece of music that I can present. So I have no problem editing. I mean, multi-tracking and having, you know, forensic quality yeah. separation is a beautiful thing. What, so what's the, bring us through the, the whole, the whole process, like uh, in fast forward mode here. So, um, obviously we the part, getting, the, getting back to the live show part, like, or just, to, no, just any creation part, because what you said is you're transferring, like, we know how you're doing it now. So you have to re, you're trying to recreate it. With, all right. So then, well, so then to bring it to the stage, yeah. um, I like to look at the multi-track of the mix and the mix down, because I, I will probably have done some EQ and sound shaping there. And plus, you know, and then, and then consider where the levels are at for bringing them into the sampler to have a nice signal to noise ratio. Um, 
and then kind of so you're bringing the eq'd finished tracks into your sample they're gonna fit better yeah they're gonna sound better so i like this you know i i basically look at the eight tracks of the octatrack and think uh you know there's two rows of four it's one through four down the left side five through eight down the right side if track one is always the kick, mm-hmm. I know where the kick is. So that if I'm doing a show and I'm, it's you know, there's lights blinking and I can't see a fucking thing on stage, and I want to turn off the kick, I function click track one. Mm-hmm. The kick is always going to be muted. Right. So I know the kick is there, and then right across from that on track five, I put the bass. Okay. And now I always know where those two elements are. And when you play through a, a loud club sound system, and there's a a row of you know 18 inch subwoofers and things. Those elements are always going to get hyped up right. to a level that you can't anticipate in the studio. So knowing where those two always are to lower them or put a high pass on them right. or change them in the middle of the show, very important. How in-depth is the EQ in there on the uh, oh, track? They have two different kinds. They have a two-band fully parametric, and then they have one that's called like DJ Equalizer, which is like high high mid and low. Okay. And it makes it really easy to reach and just, you know, So So if there's it. something like, if there's some resonant frequency that's driving you fucking nuts in the room, you can grab it and get rid of it and put your, your engineering hat on for a second. Yes, And then absolutely. get back to making music. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So you have, so you're using... Uh, and then and further down the line. Yeah. So now this machine has two sets of outputs. Uh, the Q output can you know is independent of the main so i put with the next track on track two is something i call the lead and the lead is just that element that has the most mid-range melodic musical timbre to it yeah and now it gets its own fader on the dj mixer so it's the entire song and then the lead and then the lead i can turn up the auxes and put reverb and delay on that lead that are independent of the the main mix, if you will. Are your delays timed as well? No, nah, they're all off, and I love it that way. <laughs> I use this I use this delay that I made called a Jellyfish. It's a kit. It's a guitar pedal, mono in, stereo out, and it's the noisy, analog, messed up, whatever. And I'm totally happy with that. I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> and that's your live millisecond, whatever. Yeah, that's the live one. It can sound completely crazy. Like, you know, I'll just self-oscillate this thing for you really quick and you see that without even feeding it a signal, you could probably get it to do something. All right, so Phil is now doing some science project shit for us. Is that going into my, my thing? No, I think just the mics are picking it Okay. Up. You want me to plug it in? No, I'll put your mic to the speaker for real quick so people can hear it. This is a podcast with two audio engineers, and we're putting a mic to a speaker right now. It's okay. I got batteries. So that's your pedal. (laughs) You made that? Wow. Amazing. Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, that's just this little delay pedal. So I use one reverb and one delay on the auxes. What um, what reverb do you use? I use the Electro Harmonics Cathedral. Oh, that's that's a cool pedal. Yeah, I like that it has um, you know, it's all hands-on. There's no screen, no diving. Right. Anytime I try to use anything more complicated than that, I regret it. I just want to be able to fix it in one. Um, and then just and then the rest of the the rest of the tracks in there are just percussive elements usually. Oh, and I like to keep one track of all the ambience 
and the drone and the background and this texture that I create that's part of the track. And I keep that playing on a, you know, on what about like a, you have like any chordal elements sometimes just to put like, yeah, that would be, that'll be inside, you know, like what, you know, again, like the lead or. So you, so you have things pretty much stemmed from your, uh, so you were, they're actually still triggering to the same rhythms that I compose them to. Huh? Like if there's a clave, you know, percussion sound, that's still five, the word trigs again, there's still five trigs in a measure that are playing that one shot. And with LFOs that make things change and evolve and sound so alive. So you create, I'm, I'm, it's like a reinterpretation. Yeah, it's like I make the song with the Octatrack anyway, put it in the computer as a multi-track, mix it, and then I take a step back and say, like, how do I perform this? Can I keep certain things the same, right. or do I need to just like take those eight bars that were right when I recorded it, stick them in the machine, and make them play? So it's really there's no, there's basically there's no every song just tells you. This is how it needs to be done. But you mentioned like that clave for a second, right? Uh-huh. So you recorded that clave. Um, who you got the sound from either drum machine or you pulled it off something. Uh, what, however, however you did it. Um, then you put it in there. You mixed it. You put some EQ on it to make it really snap. Uh, now, do you take that EQ'd clave and bring it back in? Yeah, yeah. And then Sometimes that's and, and that's a one shot. That it you... could go either way. It could go either way. Sometimes it's like a several measure loop, and sometimes it's the one shot back in. So right. It, it's just like processing things over and over again until they sound their best. And again, each song is unique. Sometimes the patterns can be the same ones that I wrote the song with. And then sometimes I could, you know, even just have all the volumes down and all the patterns playing and just fade everything in Mm -hmm. from nowhere. So sometimes things snap in, sometimes they fade in. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, if I got the arrangement to a certain place where I I really just love the studio version, I sort of try to recreate it. It's never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's great because, you know, it's like multi-track DJing, really, because you could be, you could you could be going between two songs or get to a point in the song that in the studio version you may rush through, but then if you look around and everybody's really loving that part, you could just sense that, and then you could just keep that part going and going until you until you make a change, bring the next element in, or you could even revisit exciting parts of songs twice that in the studio version it kind of just flew by and it's over. Yeah, your if bridge only like did it go, once, but yeah. <laughs> exactly people you know if people react to that part you're like well shit i'm just I, you know i'm not ready to end this song yet i guess right. i gotta go back to the a section again you know th- those kinds of options are there um now here's a question go ahead um say you did something in the studio you did you recorded something in the studio you did it live and you found that you made a new arrangement that worked so much better well, would you ever go back and redo the original uh yeah there's sometimes there are songs that are only stage songs that the studio version sucked but then after playing it live a bunch of times it's just like a band i mean yeah. you could just realize like oh shit we didn't you know now that we have this experience let's perform this the right way it's it's amazing because um with blue oyster cult we do that the live versions are so different than the studio versions that they recorded 40 years ago you know, I, I'll ask them like, "Oh, we we don't do this part from the record," and they're like, "No, that didn't work." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's on this record that everybody loves," <laughs> and they're like, "They're like, no, but live it didn't work." You know what I mean? Live just it just sat there, and we can't have that. It's like it, we have to make a good show that pumps people up, and it's you know, it, and even with with when when I did my album with my band Morning Starlet, like me when we went to go rec- record the stuff live, like me and Andy would be like. And he's like, I'm gonna do this in the drums. I'm like, shit, we totally should have done that in the studio. He goes, Yeah, we should have, but it's too late now. So now let's just do it live. So you know, just it, it's funny because you don't have the um, when you record something first before performing it live, you don't have the refining process that you have. You know, when if you do it the the opposite way. But 
for guys like us now, especially the, like the nature of gigs, it's like you have to record the stuff first and then go. I know, here. but <laughs> you know the old, the old, the old saying is true. The best time to record a band is when they're coming off the road yeah. and they know the song's cold. Yep. Um, so I want to. Um, I know we we keep trying to do this and I keep getting sidetracked. Okay. Quick, very quickly. Name your favorite reverb. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Pensados, please. Is that what we're doing? I'm, I'm going to put you, put you in, in the batter's box now. And um, okay. No. Uh, so, um, just let's go down the uh, the the list, and you can tell me what the gear is and what you use it for as quickly as possible. And I'll try not to uh, sidetrack you again. All right. Um. Yeah. So I have an even tied harmonizer, multi effects there. I have it's- a long story, but no, I'm kidding. Go on. <laughs> I had one of those yeah. in 87. Yeah. Jim McElwain spilled coffee creamer on it. <laughs> we, um, we're going to talk about that too, but go on. Uh, so yeah, this is a, you know, this is their classic uh, late 80s, I guess early 90s reverb and multi-effects and it's the greatest. I mean, anything that you do with this machine has a certain metallic sound to it that I love and it does all kinds of crazy, unpredictable shit. It's got a thousand presets in there. And the manual, you know, you do a little search in the PDF for something yep. you're looking for and you come up with 20 little vocal glitches and really cool delays, obviously harmonies and shit. It even has sound effects in there. If you press the button, it's like you're launching a tank missile and shit. You ever <laughs> seen those? No. We have to get into that later. <laughs> um, then the next couple of things are just, you know, um, different multi-effects like the Korg. SDD 2000 is a classic delay. It also has a really cheap sampler in there that I plan on using. Um, some of the Kurzweil effects, the Rumor and the Mangler. I always wanted those and wanted to have Kurzweil shit, but I got to say, I don't use them as much um, because I have other things that I prefer. Right. But I, I actually plan, like I've been saying, a long list of things to do in the next three months. <laughs> and messing with those and seeing what I can get out of those is something I want to do. They're supposed to be like a very good bang for your buck. Uh, reverb and multi effects, uh, SSL channel strip, which is what I have too. <laughs> yeah, do you have that? Yep, I use that for all basically single mic tracking. It's a very clean, same what you what you see is what you get. Um, and then the next couple of things are from this garbage pile that I told you about. <laughs> oh, that's what that is. That's the garbage, uh, that's the trash tower right there. Um, an Insonic Mirage 8 bit sampler, the first really affordable commercially available multi-sampler that's um i thought it was broken but i figured out how to make floppy disks for it so this is my shit if you get a windows xp laptop there's an app called omniflop and it allows you to write floppy disks for vintage samplers wow somebody posted a whole bank of floppy img files for that machine and I put my interns uh, on a mission. <laughs> the Mirage is a classic. It's this old sampler that has a very gritty but beautiful sound. And it has amazing strings in it. Wow. Um, and it was known as one of the first synths in Detroit techno. It was, it was like the first sampler that all those classics were made with. And I always wanted to have it. And it's so fucking cheap. You know, they got the keyboard versions like 150 bucks. You could go on eBay, get the keyboard version with a with a bunch of floppy disks and a road case and the manual for a buck fifty. Wow! But I always held out because I was just like, ah, this big fucking keyboard. You in want my the house. rack? And the rack was the one, and I found it in the trash. All this shit I found in the trash. The next one is a really um, 
lame Proteus orchestral module that I love. I wanted that so badly oh, when, I, when I was a kid. I don't blame you. Let me tell you, there's some horribly great sounds in there. I remember going to the NAMM show <laughs> and hearing the Proteus, the Emu Proteus. Uh, uh, it's an Emu, right? Yeah. Um, uh, orchestral. And I was like, oh, all the realistic lush string sounds. <laughs> I wish I could have this. It's like having the Lon- London Symphony in yeah. my living room. <laughs> Um, yeah, that one, the Roland D110 is a really shitty digital module. Had one of those, that thing sucks ass. It's horrible. I love it. I I mean, but these are these pieces of gear that A, I got them for free, and B, if I sold them and got 75 bucks, I'd be lucky. So you might as well just keep them and make something. Basically, the D110 is like having the general MIDI sounds that come with your computer in a rack. (laughs) There's some really cheap X-File sounding digital shit. Yeah, there there is. Yeah, there is. (laughs) If you need to score a 1991 sci-fi TV show, (laughs) reach for the D110. And the next thing is something that is going to be, that is the partner to the Commodore 64 monitor. So I got to find an RCA cable to pull off this next trick. But that's a Roland S550 multi-sampler. And that was like their competitor to the Insonic, but with slightly better specs. Um, was a lot of money. I think it was, um, I think it was like twenty eight hundred bucks in the in the eighties. Oh my god! But you know these things were replacing Fairlights. Yeah. You know, if you had had forty Gs and you were making Thriller, you had a Fairlight. Right. But if you were, you know, we keep talking about this home studio thing. This is the first chance you had at having a sampler. So there's the Akai S nine fifty. The Mirage and then the Roland S series, the S550 and the S330, which I have over there. And the one and the S330 that I got, I put a USB floppy disk emulator in. Wow. So you could have a flash key that thinks it's a floppy disk. That's amazing. That's what that is, 29 bucks. <laughs> uh, if you ever want to go down that road, I'll show you how to install it, but I don't see it happening. Uh, let me grab this RCA cable. So I'm going to uh, fill in the blanks here. Phil, at the center of his studio, he, is that an Allen and Heath board? Yes. He has an Allen Heath board, and this is where he has a lot of his stuff routed. Um, he also has, is is that a Dangerous Music uh, speaker controller? Yeah, I use, that's a D-Box. Okay, and, um, a D-Box. I don't know if you can make it. Can you hear me through your mic? No, I'll just relay it. But I'll, no, I'll talk about what I know before before I you know just shoot my mouth off. Uh, he's got two sets of speakers. He's got the, uh, the Mackie, what are those, H... Uh, HR824s, and he has these huge speakers in the wall, which are what? Those are Yuri 813Bs. Yuri 813Bs. They look like um, the things that the Germans use in the war to make people shit themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they look like the, the brown note speakers. Um, and let's see if uh, any other gear I, re- I recognize there. Oh, you have, um, what's that TC Electronic thing you have down there? That's a finalizer, and I only use that. I'm sorry, I'm off mic here. That's a finalizer, but I only use that um, as DSP for the big speakers. Oh. Because I had it, and I was going to actually try to master with it, and and I never got around to it. So it ended up being... Oh, I was gonna. I was trying to perform with it, like to have a limiter live, and I realized how stupid that was. (laughs) I think the the whole thing of performing live with this kind of equipment is that it sounds raw and untamed and right that you could have moments where frequencies get out of control and, and and people go nuts for that shit compression live is tough yeah it's bullshit yeah i want nothing to do with it because they're probably doing it anyway yeah somebody down the line has a mixing board and a, and a ponytail and they're <laughs> fucking with what you're doing <laughs> so you don't need to send it to them compressed oh you my know? god um you have a is that a lynx aurora 
Yeah. Is um, that your clock? Yeah. No, no, that's the interface. Oh, it's the interface. That's a 16 by 16. Oh, okay. Interesting. And that has a and PCI card into the tower. This whole rig is, you know, like, again, I've only had two systems. If Every time you get a computer that has the, the OS and the Pro Tools and the interface rocking and rolling, don't change a thing. Right. You know, and that's the most important thing to know of building a studio that like whatever computer you get you should be using it for about eight years anything less than that you didn't get your dollars worth yep. i think my i think that's about where i'm at right now with my studio computer yeah i'm, I'm now i'm using a pc <gasps> the horror okay now phil is hooking up his roland sampler to a commodore 64 monitor no is that a is that the actual computer or is that just a monitor it's a monitor for my sampler. Okay, it's the monitor for his sampler. An RCA in monitor. Okay, it monochrome says, baby. It's monochrome S550 system version 1.13 copyright Roland. I, I feel like I've just stepped into a fucking time machine in here. <laughs> now I don't have any MIDI cables hooked up, but by the time this disc loads, I can hook up seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's loading something. Um, Okay, let's talk about some other stuff that I see in the studio here. Um, now you have, it looks like three. No, are are those your synths over there? Is, the, is that the virus? Yeah, that was um, the same thing that I had in the '90s. You used to love that thing. I do. I still do. It's a virtual analog, sixteen part multi timbral, which means you could send sixteen MIDI channels to it and have sixteen independent sounds through six outputs. Awesome uh, and and reverb and delay per per part it's more powerful than than the shit they're putting out now and it's the it's a very convincing virtual analog i still stand by that as being a great versatile all-around synth for anybody um and then yeah that's an mks 50 which is an alpha juno in the rack uh and then some studio electronics mono synths, the ATC1, which is like a Moog Source clone. Mm -hmm. And then the SE1, which is like a mini Moog clone. Now, for those of you who don't know the mini Moog, that's a very famous synthesizer um, for from all genres. That's uh, also the, the Blue Oyster Cult uh, recordings have a lot of mini, mini Moog on them. In fact, um, I think Eric Bloom had the band's mini Moog until recently, the original one, uh, which cost a pretty penny to restore. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. I, I, you're the guy I called. Oh shit! Look how all this stuff comes around. Yeah, because Eric asked me about. He said, uh, "Who do I talk to to get this mini Moog restored?" And I called you. Um, aside from all that, he has a um, he has a rack full of filters. He has an electroharmonics filter. He has those. What are those ones called under that? Um, yeah, this this is um, above the electroharmonics. Is this is this German thing? A Shipman Ebenflut. It's really high-end that's only mono that's a single mono filter with all those controls on there because it's in two parts and now, then, wh while while you're setting up i'll explain what a filter does um because phil's doing some cr crazy shit right now but i wouldn't expect anything less from coming to this place and seeing what he's doing right now but um a filter is a big part of well it's a big part of mixing and and in, in general but in dance music you know all right i'm gonna give you a really crude um definition of what a filter does it's it's you know that you know that that's one thing a filter does that how was that you like that you like that explanation <laughs> so that's when you're uh, modifying the sound um 
it's like EQ, it's it's pretty much EQ, but it's they take it a step further. They'll time things and they'll make it a rhythmic element or even like a musical element, melodic element with the, with the filtering if you do it right. Was that a good explanation, Phil? That was pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Okay, try <laughs> do do better than me. I don't think I could do much better though. <laughs> You know, a filter, it takes away. Yeah. It removes frequencies. It's either removing... It does this. <laughs> I was tempted to sing a little sawtooth sawtooth synth patch, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Either it takes away treble and makes things duller, yeah. and that's a low-pass filter, or it takes away bass and makes things thinner, and that's a high-pass filter. You could do it at both sides, and it's a band-pass filter. Mm-hmm. How's that for explanation? It's really good. I like mine better though. <laughs> okay, are we hooked up here? Oh my god! So do you see how track A is blinking? Yeah. So that's Japanese percussion floppy disk, <laughs> and we've got the eight channels there, and then you know on the controller over here just. Go to channel two. Or so now he's controlling this old Roland sampler that's going through a monochromatic monitor with his octatrack, and he's playing it like an instrument right now. <laughs> so yeah, they came out with a whole series of floppy disks for this line of samplers and they put them in the local music shops so they would give you know i guess i don't know sam ash or whoever boo they would (laughs) they would give the stores the entire library and you would go there with blank discs and the clerk i guess this is how this is what i read about from the site that i jacked these from the clerk would be like all right which discs do you want you're like yeah i'll take japanese percussion two indian flutes volume one strings cellos whatever and they would give you the discs and you make copies in the store and go home with the sounds and that's how they distributed the library for these things would they pay for them or was it just free no that was how they like got you to buy the piece that you could go to stores and get the get the libraries for free how crazy is that with all the copy protection shit that goes on now that that's what they used to do with sounds yeah um and you could just imagine these being really good quality because this is you know, this is Roland in the 80s releasing a sampler that costs several thousand dollars. Inflation value of this thing is like nine Gs, right? Right. Uh, and then these are probably amazing Japanese sound designers that are, are that are putting really great sounds together. And this whole shit, we're looking at seven banks of sounds on a single, single density, oh, I'm sorry, double density, not high density floppy. So there's like 720K of samples but it's an it's a, a, this giant library with just one disc loading, and then there's these like other hundred discs that you could get. So I burned like thirty of them onto floppy with the XP laptop that I found, and now I could load up any of them. You're crazy! I wouldn't uh, go through any of this trouble this, to do this. This sampler, <laughs> this sampler has external control for a mouse. Yeah, and there's other screens on here where you could see the piano roll. And they also made a drawing tablet, the Roland DT100, <laughs> that I must find on eBay someday. And you could draw your own waveforms with it. Oh, my God. And then this thing becomes a synthesizer. Because all of these old school uh, samplers that, that we see here, they have discs that sort of make them synthesizers. Because a synthesizer is really just playing 
a repeated waveform. Right. So both the Mirage had somebody made this, uh, I think it's called sound process. You just get this OS for it. And when it loads, it puts these waveforms in it that go through its filters. And 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 the same thing with the Roland. You can make your own waveforms or draw them with the mouse or with this very coveted rare drawing tablet. And then you have a you have a a synthesizer. You have a subtractive synth. How much is this drawing tablet, honey? Oh, I haven't seen it. It's it's, <laughs> it's like the VGA card for the MPC. It shows up, you know, annually. Disappear, oh my god! Disappears back down, you know, somewhere. But, oh. I want to talk about just a couple more things that, aside from all the impressive rack gear that, that Phil has around here, <laughs> it's amazing. He also has his traditional turntable set up over there. He's got what looks like an eight-track cassette recorder. Yeah, that's a Tascam sync cassette. That's got to sound like total ass. I had one of those. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I had the four-track version. Which oh, was... well, just imagine reducing your bandwidth by 50%. <laughs> yeah, horrible. Yeah, they jammed uh, eight tracks of audio onto a... Uh, what is that? 0.15 inch tape. Yeah. Amazing. He's got what looks like a two track reel to reel. Yeah. He's got a Rode 73. Right. And he's got a guitar. <laughs> uh, I actually came here and recorded a guitar for you once. That was fun. We, uh, we did acoustic guitar back there. He's got a booth. It's a very, very cool room. It's a cool atmosphere. And, you know, I just, it's, I just, you know, you feel comfortable in here. This is a, this is a great, I know. great space. That's, a, that's one of the best things about it. When people come through, you know, they perceive this, this ancient, historic new york city studio vibe yeah um the building itself and the location you know this is a recording and rehearsal arts building and it has been that forever mm -hmm. and yeah and when you come down here you just have that sense did i ever show you that the sopranos scene was shot in here which one that when christopher breaks the guitar over the dude <laughs> the recording studio is this studio it's this room we're in right now yeah get the hell out of here i'm serious you know when they're suffering through that mix yeah i think we should bag it Take fifty six. Who was singing? Was it was? It's Adriana's it, managing some yeah, shitty band. Yeah, Christopher comes in right over there, and the the fire extinguisher is still where it once was, and the, that's the intercom. You want to see it for a second? Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. All right, see the Japanese percussion of Christopher. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna dead. pause this for a second while you while you while you uh, pull this up. Okay, we're back. Play it. Oh. Holy shit, that's where we are. I don't want to stay. There must be a <laughs> Go on YouTube and look this up, guys. Take 62. We ought to just bag it. Okay, we're bagging it. We should have bagged this two days ago when it was fucking perfect. <laughs> Do we have to go on to him getting hit no, with the guitar? No, no. What did you tell? Oh, Sopranos... Uh, Christopher Christopher Moltisante loses his temper, and this is a you just provided me with a wonderful, wonderful segue. I did not like The Sopranos when it came out. Um, 
And do you know who got me into The Sopranos? Who's that? Phil Maffa. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How is that possible? I wasn't even a, ever a huge fan of this show. No, 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 no. Yes, you were. Really? And you said, all right, go back to my dorm room. We got to see what happens to Jackie Jr. this week. No way. <laughs> yes, you did. Your oh. words. We got to go. We got to go see what happens to Jackie Jr. <laughs> That's hysterical. So, um, okay, I want to take take the band geeks back to 1998. Um at Purchase College, Purchase, New York. And let's talk about how we met because I think it's interesting how we became friends. And um, we were in an audio lab together, right? We we were in the 16-track lab together. And the, the, what happened was we were all trying to... Now, were you, were you making music yet at that point or were you just sort of getting into it? Yeah, um, I was probably yeah nothing zero experience at that point i just remembered like i got the impression that you were just because they were the thing about purchase is and forgive me um if i'm coming off as like an asshole but the thing about (laughs) it is that a lot of people went there because they didn't know what to do after they graduated high school um and it was like a sort of thing like oh i play guitar or I meet, I make beats, and I have to go to college now. You know what I mean? And a few of those people basically didn't get anything out of the experience, and you know, le- left with as much knowledge or you know whatever uh, as they had when they came in. And then there are a few people um, like you um, who totally transformed themselves in college, and it almost defined them the things they learned in that rather short period of life and that's amazing to me um uh people that come to mind are you and josh mersky who's a friend of ours and you know like just people who who came in one way and came out a completely different person almost i think it's just like how much time you spend in the studio i I, I don't know i don't know what else it would be like you know um I came in just DJing and didn't know shit, and I and I wanted to get into making tracks. Mm-hmm. And once they gave us access to the rooms, I never left. When I went to go look at colleges with my parents, um, you know, it was 1997 or whatever, 1996. I was a junior. It was time to go look. I went to three colleges. I went to uh, five towns, which I found out was more of a business than a college, so I didn't go there. Um, and if you went to five towns, sorry, you know what I mean. That's if you if you learn stuff, great. That's all that really matters, um, because really anybody who gets a music degree can tell you the piece of paper is meaningless. Um, it's a, it's all about unless you want to go teach yourself, then it's not meaningless. But um, in terms of what you learn, it's all about what you can apply to make a living for yourself. Um, and so, and another school I went to was uh, the University of Hartford. I wanted to go there. And in the, the, in the University of Hartford, they took us into the studio. And it was a beautiful, like, 48-track analog console with reel-to-reel and all this rack gear. And there was nobody in it. And I said, well, when, when do you get to use a studio? He said, oh, you know, when you're a junior, we'll start to let you in here and teach you how to do it. And by the time you're a senior, you'll be able to use it. And I'm like, well, what about the first two years? He said, oh, well, you're going to be doing learning the theory in the classrooms. So, so then by the time you're a junior and you're in here, you'll know what you're doing. I'm like, okay. Then we went to go see. Now it was beautiful. The University of Hartford. It was like crazy, right? It was top notch. We went to purchase. It looked like completely fucked up and disheveled. Everything was. It was before they repainted it and redid. Now it looks beautiful. I understand because they re. Uh, who's it? Denenberg came in there and and, re, and redid the whole thing. Um, but 
it was all just shitty looking and terrible. Yeah, it was like white paint, yeah. plaster, yeah, sheetrock, and nothing. Everything just just decrepit and, and falling off the walls. And the gear in the rooms was all shit. It was all like, here's an ADAT and a Mackie, and that's it, and, and <laughs> go to town. And But the difference was every studio had a kid in there that when we went on the tour, we were disturbing. You know what I mean? It was just like, the kid's like, oh my God, they're bringing parents and kids in here again. And I'm like, this is where I have to go. Because they know. they throw know. your ass into the fire day one. They're just like, go. You know what I mean? And that is what I liked about it. But that's how we, we met. Because we were in an, a studio lab. And what they would do as a freshman is they'd put you in, uh, you'd have, what are they, is that what they called it, a lab? Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, and um, you'd have to, you'd have the class where you'd learn about the theory of it. But then you'd go to lab and a junior would be in the, in the class teaching everybody how to, not junior, the, the next, whatever the next year was. So if you were a freshman, you had a sophomore in there that would get money or credits or whatever for, for running your lab. And they would teach us. And so we're all in the lab and we have to, our first assignment is rec- to record a cover song. And so we have Phil, who's a, a DJ, uh, Mr. Rock and Roll Guitar Player Me. Uh, we have a drummer who, Jared Apuzo was in our class, who became the drummer in my band. Uh, who was a bit like hippy dippy sort of guy, and we're all trying to figure out like what is the one common thing we all have, and it was very difficult. And then somebody suggested, let's do the theme to Super Mario Brothers because we're all like roughly you know eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, we all grew up with N- Nintendo, and we made this like sort of weird version of Mario Brothers where you you had like you brought some some vinyl stuff in. You had started off with like a sample from some vinyl. And then I did with like rock guitars. This one played the piano on it, and it was pretty cool. Like, and 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 I really had a good feeling about college after working with you guys. And it was I got the sense that you were a little overwhelmed that in that first thing because you because you just basically were just straight up DJing. You know what I mean? You weren't yeah, really I didn't know in, anything. And you went from that to running the fucking place, which which, which always impressed me. And like I think a year later, that that room that we were learning how to use a studio in, you ran that room in the next year, which is which is pretty awesome. Um, another funny thing is that we were we were taking that <laughs> we were t- we were taking the lab one day, and our the, the the kid that was supposed to be teaching our lab didn't show up, and we went to our professor Jim McElwain, like there's no teacher here, what are we gonna do? And he like went. Richie, guess who the new lab teacher is? <laughs> nice so, do you remember that when I, nah. I I had to teach our lab that I was supposed to be <laughs> learning and I was teaching it? It was so funny. But another really funny uh, memory I have of college is um, when you run a studio there, and I I ran a studio at one point. And when you run a studio, you have to write a report and a proposal on what new gear you need, so they figure out if they can. Uh, Alec, you know where I'm going with this? Nah, so, so I'm they guessing think, they didn't give you the fucking. No, you <laughs> you were you were the one. You were you. It's for the 60 track studio. You were running it, and you had to write a proposal for like what new gear it needs. And you're like, okay, we really need to have like new headphones. We need to have this, and and maybe you know we have to get this fixed and whatever. And it's then you wrote one thing in there. She goes, you said, and we need real compressors. I don't care how much Richie Castellano likes these single slider <laughs> compressors. And you put me, you name drop me. You said, I don't care how much Richie Castellano. What was it? The one sixty three, the one sixty three X or whatever. I have one in my studio, rack mounted, motherfucker. But anyway, so it's like you said, I don't care how much Richie Castellano likes these compressors. We need a compressor with knobs on it, please. That's fucking funny. Um, 
and I, I remember um, when we were talking about how little I I knew coming in. Yeah, I remember being in a class with you, and you were like, "Oh, I noticed that you know whatever the instrument it was is panned a little bit to the left." <laughs> I remember this story, and I'm just like, "Fuck, man! You could put different things in the two speakers." <laughs> That was a revelation to me. I'm I, still telling my classes that. Was it you? Because I remember That's how that little I knew about audio. McElwain, our professor, Jim McElwain, who's a wonderful guy who me and Phil still work with from time to time, um, he was playing a recording and someone and he said, tell me what you hear. And I like raised my hand. I'm like, okay, here, this, this, this. Cowbell's pan to the left. And then, and then somebody turned around and said, how are you hearing that? And just like yelled at me. <laughs> but... Um, so I had, I had some, I wasn't, it wasn't, I'm trying to paint myself into a, a flattering light here, but it really wasn't all that flattering because we were discussing this over dinner earlier. I had the problem of mixes were never finished. So like when we used to have to play mixes in class and everybody like, yeah, here's, here's the track I just did. Okay. Whatever. And I would always be like, here's my song that I wrote. It ain't finished. But did you is. give the preamble about how it has no compression on it? Yeah, this, exactly. is, this is what I go through when yeah. kids play songs. I yeah. sound Look, guys, when you get on stage to play, you don't apologize mm -hmm. for how shitty your song is before you play it. You just play the fucking song. And the same thing for the studio. You either say it's a work in progress or you press the play button. I don't want to hear your life story every time yep. you play a track. Now, we um, we had some some pretty interesting professors. It sounds to me like you, and, t and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you got a lot out of Darry John Mizell's class. Did you did you take tamper synthesis with him? I did. I did. Because it sounds like you're really employing a lot of what, what he he taught you. I mean, yeah. To this day, I'm still um, referencing that, and even just thinking about it, um, and how you know he was talking about making your own scale yeah. and how our tempered scale is divided. Yep. And you know, even if I'm not obviously, I'm not sitting here and adding sine waves together every single day to make. <laughs> New, new things but that experience both him and being in class with you know my favorite joel thome yep um being in class with legends like that and just the stuff that they that you joel thome worked with frank zappa i should, I no should mention. no big deal yeah <laughs> and Darry john mizell is the crazy professor you you wish you have in college yeah, that's basically the he, mad professor composer i i learned music theory from him um and he was the guy that got me into mozart and he was also, um, really? yeah, I took timbre synthesis as well, and it blew my mind because uh, basically I, the one thing I, I remember from that class is um, he was trying to make something resonate with EQ, right? And I said, you shouldn't do that. It's introducing noise. You shouldn't do it. He goes, he said, this isn't mixing. This is synthesis creation. This is, this is timbre. This is comp composition. He said, we're using, the goal here is to use your audio tools to make new sounds. And that is mind blowing for someone who's been told, "Oh, you can't add noise, you can't do that." It it, it really was a one of the best classes I took at, at that, school. That's really interesting because yes, I've spent the last twenty years trying to make filters resonate yep. to create new things, and nothing gets me more excited than finding in a sample via a filter and the resonance control a new harmonic that was in there that is the new lead. Whereas before it was a, a full song. Right. And I just find one harmonic and I can turn that into an, its entire song. He gave us a really cool assignment, uh, which was to, we had to create a whole song using the program SoundForge. And um, do you remember what you did for that? 
Um, yeah, I still have it on CD somewhere. I swear. <laughs> I'm a fucking archivist. I remember just making a bunch of sounds um, with that process of layering sine waves until new timbres arise, and you you know. I, and I made a sample. I basically do. I'm still doing what I did then. I made a sample library of weird sounds and I sequenced them. And that's what I do. I couldn't wrap my head around. And that was one of the problems I had with the master's. Pro, now, you, you have a master's too, right? Like me. And it, one of the things, the problems I had wrapping my head around was modern composition. You know what I mean? Like, because we're hearing a lot of modern music where it doesn't conform to pop sensibilities like the stuff you and I do now, which they pretty much do. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're making dance music, I'm making rock music, and that has to, there's rules, um, whether we like them or not. But I remember what I did for that was I couldn't get my head around the, because someone would just play like an ambient track, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm listening to. Like, I like it, I don't, I can't do it. You know, I don't get it. Um, so what I ended up doing is I made a bunch of, uh, sounds in in um in soundforge and i brought them into pro tools and then i made a rock band out of them like i said okay this sounds like a guitar this is like a keyboard this is like a this could be a hi-hat this could be whatever and i remembered one one of the sounds i put because my favorite song is still bohemian rhapsody i sped up bohemian rhapsody until it um i sped it up until it was a pulse and then i made a, t- a pulse wave out of bohemian rhapsody which is, is, is probably shit you do every day that's no not... that's i love that <laughs> you condense that entire song into a single cycle yeah that's brilliant i, I made that song a cycle and then and then it, it, it sounds like it's a pulse of course it's of a, course it's not like anything but i'm like that's right <laughs> but with the filter that's that's a synthesizer i, right I can get sued from by emi for this yes you can um but I, I'd say the best time I had with you at college is when the three of when you and I and Sebastian Marciano took Andy Cardenas's master class. That was the best time. I think that's when we got the closest was during that. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, um, we learned. We always say learned more in one hour about EQ. Yep. Than seven years of college or whatever. There was this guy at our school. His name was Andy Cardenas, and he wasn't a teacher. He was basically uh, on the uh, on the staff uh, as a studio tech. That's it. Like his job was to supervise the studio spaces, make sure everything was up and running. It pretty much maintenance was his gig. You know what I mean? And for some reason, they gave him a master class teaching master students, graduate students. So, you know, we got. I don't know if we signed up for it or we got just assigned to him. Do you remember how that nah. went? And it was me, you, and Seb, and we, he blew our fucking minds with, with all the mixes up. Like, he brought mixes up, and we were like, oh, you can't do that. He was like, and, and I remember he used to say, like, you got to spank this shit, man. <laughs> I'm like, like, I put a compressor on the code. Look, it's it's nice and even. It goes, no, man, you're not spanking this shit. You got to spank it. And he taught me about the time uh, variables in a compressor better than anybody. Like he taught me how to use. Like how I'm to gonna make... have to. I'm gonna have to have you reteach that to me. Well, no, just like you know, if you want to have your snare drum more snappy, you make the attack later. Yeah, of like course. I never like got. If you want the 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 yeah stuff to pop it's out of your counterintuitive vocal. because yeah. you would think oh a faster attack makes yeah. it a, like a synth right yeah. yeah. If you want sustain, you know what I mean. You have to play with the release. You know you have to make it short, shorter release so the thing sustains more. It's like there's all this. And I, I never realized that. Like, and he taught me how. Like, no, 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 no. 
you're not just making the levels nice. You are shaping the music. You're telling people where the transients are. You're you're massaging the groove. You know, he really and and e and that was just compression. EQ, I'd be like, oh, you know, I put a little high. He goes, you got to put that shit up all the way. He's like, your vocal is not cutting. You like all the stuff we were taught like not to do. Like, oh, don't don't rely on EQ. Don't do that. He's like, no, man. Like, you're the last. This is the last defense before this goes off to mastering. You know what I mean? This is the last chance to make this shit sound good. So he like taught me how to be so bold with all the studio tools where everybody else before them, and rightly so, because you don't want a noisy mix. You don't want to like put up a mic in the wrong spot and have to rely on you know stu- studio. You don't want to fix it in the mix, so, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, absolutely. But we, it was so counterintuitive to everything we were taught what he was doing. You know, he was just like, no, no, drive those knobs. Yeah, like, if, it, if it has to be plus 12 dB at 12K, that was what it was supposed to be. That's what it has to be. Yep. And we did a, um, and we had to do a song together. And this is what I, and you know, I think I should play this song. What do you think? I hope you don't. <laughs> no? Okay, fine. It's funny because somebody was in here a couple of days ago and they were doing, they're doing like this podcast um Kind of like a like an old time radio show with actors reading a script, like in that in that kind of mentality. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, like in the in the show, one of the characters, I had to make like a really shitty pop song for her. I was like, oh, I know what that's like. <laughs> I know what that's like. So what we, we just tell him about it. I don't want to hear that. So what we I'm gonna play like ten seconds of it on this. Oh my goodness. But anyway, I'll, I'll you've put been it, warned. I'll, I'll put it in later. But I'll put it in quiet. Yeah, put it in quiet. <laughs> you know, it's you know, right now what you're hearing in the background while we're talking. That's forty that's... feet away. <laughs> um, so we had to write a song together and and agree on it and produce it and mix it together. That was our final project. My students still couldn't pull that off. That's some fucking incredible. Well, do you know why? Do and shit. to sidetrack again, it's because now that this this equipment, this technology is so cheap and accessible, now it's not special to use it anymore. Like think about how special it was that we got access to ADATs and and twenty four channel mixers and and racks of gear. You know what I mean? And yeah, we, and I don't think anybody's making full songs. That's the weirdest thing. They're just bringing in snippets of shit. It's like I think a bit. If you're making, oh, just just to fill in. I'm sorry, Phil. Just to fill in the blanks. Phil's a teacher now at Purchase College where we went. So that's what he's talking about when he says his students. But go on. Yeah, there's this. Um, well, there's uh, there's always going to be the pros and cons to it, and you know we get. And when you become a curmudgeonly old man like myself and you get pissed off at how the younger generation, this, that, and the other, um, you know, the millennials, if you will, and their short attention span growing up with iTunes as a 30 second player and yeah. you zip through 20 YouTube videos. You don't listen to a full song. You know, my nieces, they don't, they don't, they listen to the first verse, the first hook, and they're on to the next track. That's, this is what, this is what kids do because they have the short attention span. Um, but also, you know, and they and also they're just fucking brilliant, mm-hmm. and that's the best part about it is that they're you know they they know about really cool new music, and they put you onto this stuff. And without that, you, you know, I wouldn't know about tons of great music. And every few years, you come across a group of kids that are really special and doing really cool shit. But right now, there are a couple of kids that have yet to play me a full thought. Everything mm-hmm. is just like I made this beat, and it's thirty seconds or in a minute. And there's no one rapping on it. There's nobody singing on it. There's no structure. It's just these couple of sounds that they got to work together nicely, which is how I begin as well. But you have to have a song and have to have arrangements. So basically what I'm saying is I get a lot of like, this is this beat I made. 
but not this is this song I made, this is this album that I made, this are these compositions that I made. And I think that's what's lacking a little bit right now. I think, I mean, do you mainly deal with the people who are doing what you're doing? In- they gravitate towards me, but it's random in the beginning. The freshmen, they, they just get what they get. And there are a couple of kids that, that don't get around to registering the right way. Then there's always, there's schedule incompatibility. So you get kids that otherwise wouldn't want to so study might, with you. So you might get a, a metal kid in your class? And I love that. Yeah. I love that shit. I mean, I would so, I so much would prefer that than somebody who wants to make commercial pop music. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a situation that happened with us. It was me um, and my the listeners know what I'm about. Phil, who was really become, becoming uh, really adept at making electronic music and dance music and, and really knew his way around the, the tools. And then there was Sebastian, who was doing straight-up hip-hop at the time. And really, really good. He, yeah, had a yeah. lot, he had a lot of years. Both of you guys had a lot of years of experience coming in, I feel like. I yeah. remember meeting you, and you were like, oh, this is my third album. <laughs> oh, shit, third album. I haven't recorded three kick drums. <laughs> but, you know, and Seb, but Seb, what I was getting at is he had already kind of had a career he yeah. was already performing had records out making beats and thank god i mean um, his mpc i used his mpc to make my audition tape <laughs> of the third beat i ever made in my life oh, you knew him before purchase no i oh. was I, as the non that non-major oh, moment right he he let me use the mpc and i made my audition with with that 2000 xl that i don't know why he ever got rid of that um but yeah that's that, so you guys knew what the fuck you were doing is what I'm saying. Well, thank you. But we, we were we were in the room together because um, we the three of us, like the odd trio, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're just- Pretty diverse. Right. We were just sitting there like, shit, we have to make a song together. And I'm like, how is this going to work? And like, you know, the the teacher, our professor Andy, who wasn't really a professor at all, uh, was just <laughs> like saying like, who had no credentials to be, no qualifications to be a professor. He's like, you know, get together, collaborate, make, write a song. Record it and mix it, and that's your final project, or else you're all fucked, you know. So we we're all sitting. I remember just we're all sitting in the studio. And I'm like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And I'm like, well, what what incorporates like? I said, you know, we can't make a hip hop track because if you do that, there's nothing for me to do, right? And if I make a rock track, there's nothing for you guys to do. You know what I mean? So that's not going to work. And if Phil makes, you know, a, a dance track, there's nothing for, you know, he does the beat. What are you going to do, Sebastian? You know what I mean? Like, I, I can put, I can play keyboard or guitar in a dance track. What are you going to do? You know, it's like, it was all like, all these dead ends. So I go, you know what'll work? What if we do like a boy band? Because at that point, Sync was really popular. And Sync, they would throw the kitchen sink into the, the mix. There'd be elements from... Electronic music, hip hop. I still love that band. <laughs> Fucking yeah. You know, I love Max Martin and I, I will never not love Max Martin. That, that's what I found was the, the the common ingredient, the common thread in all this music f- from from when I was a kid till now is Max Martin. Britney Spears, NSYNC, uh, Katy Perry, which I, I love Katy Perry. So it's like uh, any Max Martin tune, I'm in. He's the guy. But anyway, um, so I said, let's do a boy band. And then one of you guys said, Fuck that. We're doing a girl band because <laughs> we're not going to have a bunch of dudes in the studio recording. So we wrote um, a girl band song and we didn't have the girls yet. We just we just wrote the song and it was – and we basically – okay, how are we going to do this? I said, all right. Basically, I took this, the chords that were in like Bye 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 and Hit Me Baby One More Time and we, we did that. And then – so – 
so here's what happened. We were all in a room together and we came up with the idea and we wrote like the lyrics and the three of us wrote them as guys. These are like the lyrics that guys wrote about like horrible shit for women to sing. It was so bad, you know, just like. I didn't write anything. I don't know what. It was a, yeah, yeah, okay. Fine. Mia culpa. All right, fine. So it was just horrible sexist lyrics that we wrote to these songs. Um, like, you know, male fantasy lyrics. And then, so we had the idea. So then we all went to work. And so Seb started making the beat. You started programming like the sounds and started making like your arpeggiators. I'm sitting there looking at the bar counts and yeah, trying to find out where the- with a pen. Yeah, with, with, I had a pen and I was counting out the bars to try to find out where the fee point, the golden ratio was, because that was one of our teachers was really big into convinced that. Convinced us that yeah. that's the only way to write. Yeah, convinced us that's the only way. So I'm, I'm sitting there like calculating where the, the, br- the bridge of the song should go. And we're just sitting there in the, in, in the room, just all doing our thing. And Phil said, guys, hold on a second. And we all look up. He goes, "We're all doing weird shit." Look around, <laughs> and we, it was so. Fun. I'll never forget that as long as I live, because because you know Sebastian's you know tunneling a, a hole through his scalp, you know through his skull, and he's he's programming. You're sitting there like on the virus programming, like trying to find like the right swing in the arpeggiator, sure, and I'm sitting there like true. with the like writing a chart of the chords to the song, trying to figure out like where we should put the arrangement. It was so funny, but I'm really proud of that song, and I think it came out great. We had um. We found three girls to do it who, who were willing to do it. I remember I asked Regina Spector, and she was like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> then, but we we got her, um, her voice is on the first song I ever made in my life, though. Really? She did like a little spoken something at the beginning of a track that I have on some CD somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so we got three girls. So we got it was Amy Radomski, um, Michelle DeAngelis, Man, this and guys brain is too high powered and cat rayo jesus how do you remember these things and and M- michelle and amy were, were very good but cat like knew exactly what we were going for and like really like delivered like michelle and amy like both did their own verses because we needed the, the three girls for the for the girl band but like cat did like we we had her in there for like two hours doing like overdubs and like all this like hey Oh, like the gymnastics I, and shit? I honestly shit? don't think we could have done that without you, man. I mean, you, I mean, to coach people <laughs> through the pop song thing, I, that was way out of my but skill set at that time. It was great, and we all, we mixed it together, and that was one of the most fun projects I did while I was in Purchase, was with you and Seb. And, I mean, when mostly it was me and you spending the most time together on that. Um, but that was, you know, when I, when just to see, like, the kind of guy you were, because, you know, you when you started, you were flailing a little bit, understandably. You never did it before. But to see at the end of that, like, three, four years, like, the kind of guy you were, I'm like, I could, I wouldn't mind working with Phil on everything. You know what I mean? Like, this, I wish that we did, we, we did the same kind of stuff because I would, I would, I would be in a band with Phil. You know what I mean? That's how I felt about that. And it was really, it was cool just to see that, like, you know, and also we have similar upbringings. We're both from boroughs. We're Italians. You know what, you I know mean? what I'm saying? <laughs> we want to see what happens to Jackie Jr. on Sunday night. Oh, man. <laughs> Throw me under the Sopranos bus. I thought I didn't watch that show back then. Um, no, you watched it. You got me into it really That's bad. That's funny, man. So I we, thought I got into that show late. That's the only reason I bring that up. I, did, have you watched it again? I missed like the first four seasons or something. Same, or I, that's what I'm saying. I got into it late. Yeah, then we caught up. You got me into it. Oh, this is I, I heard you. <laughs> I didn't. But, know. but I watch. I tried to watch it again like uh, two years ago, yeah. a year ago. That shit is fucking depressing. Yeah, it is. It's unwatchable. I mean, that's the 
that's the point of it. It's tragic. Yeah, it's the point of it. But um, so it's still still classic. Okay, right now in the podcast, I'm gonna play our, uh, a few seconds of our song so you can hear it. drive this home because I've kept I've taken up enough of Phil's time and we have to talk about Kung Fu after this yeah we have a Kung Fu flick to watch yeah <laughs> oh that's another thing that me and Phil have in common uh, Phil studied uh, Wing Chun that's right oh look at that taking shit. out the mic stand right that's, now oh, look at him look at him <laughs> oh man look at him sticky hands to share to that <laughs> and I studied the Shaolin and uh, you know we I think we did it for about the same amount of time right what's interesting is that you watched Kung Fu flicks and you're like fuck this I'm gonna go do this for real <laughs> And so classes, and then when I was taking classes, they were like, if you're not up on Kung Fu flicks, like, we're not going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so you need to go, you need to go get your Shaw Brothers shit straight, come back to class, tell me what the drunken master did. It's, it's a really funny thing, because um, the only time me and Phil talk to each other now is when one of us has a Pro Tools issue, or we're like... So Ip Man 3, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, or if you find some really crazy flick. I still got, you know, like I said, I saw this one. It was on the El Rey network. I don't know if you're down with the El Rey. You know about that? You know, when I go by my brother's spot, you know, they got the Shaw Brothers quadruple feature. So you, There what, goes Sunday. So what are you watching now? What do you have for me? Hold on, let me grab that. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, I'm being handed a disc. In, oh my god! It's still in the cellophane. Yeah, I um, told you I kept it in the shrink wrap. Holy flame of the martial world, and yes, he has stumped me. I've never seen this one. All right, I just want to say that of all the Shaw Brothers shit, this is the one that they must have made after seeing Tron. That's all I'm gonna say. Really? Yeah, like they saw Tron and a couple of zombie flicks, and then this movie got made. That's my guess because there's some crazy special effects. Electronic music sounds, and it's right around that era, and I think that's what they were going for. All right, I might be pushing it. You know, this may be this may be a loose association, <laughs> but there are some. There are. There's definitely post mortem kung fu masters <laughs> and some blue lights. <laughs> that's all I gotta say. I'm dying to see this. So we're gonna we're gonna take you out. First of all, I want to thank you, Phil, for taking the time to do this. This was a blast. Oh man, my pleasure. So thank you, and I, I to be a part of this legendary series. <laughs> we're gonna do more stuff. Uh, we got to. We have yes, to. Yes, yes. More projects to be had. Um, and 
I want to. Uh, did also, we talk about every piece of gear in this room? We, I don't know. We didn't, but maybe we'll have to do that for a part two. Because it'll have like, to be a part two. Because if, I, if I the know that request it. I know that as this is over a lot of people's heads, and it's just I thought it was interesting because this is something that I'm not versed in at all, and Phil is very very good at it. So he's the guy you want to talk to. He writes for magazines about this. He's a teacher. He's the dude, and and I appreciate if you if you stuck it out with all the techno stuff. We were, the, I mean technical mumbo jumbo we were talking about. Um, but we're going to end on one of Phil's tracks. So um, tell, set it up with what they're about to hear if you want to tell us what the name is or where they can download it. It's, 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 a go, it's going. What to play, what to play. <laughs> All right, I'm going to play something that's not um, not beat-oriented track. This is a pretty obscure one. Okay. Um I have been making a lot of beatless stuff lately, and you mentioned ambient earlier. I've been doing tons of that stuff, and I've been working at home, as I was telling you, on my four-track cassette. Um, so this one is um, is a very strange interpretation of a Bernard Herrmann track from the Hitchcock film Vertigo. Okay. This is my version of the Vertigo theme, all right? And this is done with um, this synth over here, which is a Waldorf XT. Okay, and that's a synth module that I've always wanted. When we were in the, when when I bought the virus, it was the virus or this, and it took me another eighteen years to get around to finally getting one of these in my life. I my li I would be a different person had I gone down the road of this being the only synth I had for the first seven <laughs> years of my music making career. And I remember I told you I have this crazy spring reverb. Yeah. All right. So that box over there, the wooden box that the Godzilla is on. It's like, it looks like a television from the uh, 80s. It's a four foot tall uh, wooden uh, monolith. Oh, my God. And uh, yeah, inside there is an AKG BX20 spring reverb. So this track is entirely made with the Waldorf and the, and the BX20. And right. are you using your four track too? No, okay. this, one is, this one was done in here. Okay. But I was just bringing that up because I've been making tons of music on there and um and i think it's yeah i think it's a result of making like all of this very loud drum driven electronic music for so long that now i'm on the course of extracting all of that and just using the timbres and the drone and the tone and things like that so this is um there, there was a i put out an ep last year called uh, rare forms and this is the b2 cut on there called vertigo Thank you. 